The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Airway Inflammation Isn't the Only Problem, Shining a Light on the Role of Airway Hyperresponsiveness in Severe Asthma. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FSQ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. I'd like to thank everybody today. Um, to our CME program entitled Airway Inflammation Isn't the Only Problem, Shining a Light on the Role of Airway Hyperresponsiveness in Severe Asthma. My name is Jonathan Corrin. I'm a clinical associate professor of medicine and pediatrics at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA in Los Angeles, California. What is airways hyperresponsiveness? Typically, we define it as a predisposition in an individual to have narrowing of the airways in response to a provocative agent. What we're gonna do is look at two individuals, one who has asthma and the other who is healthy. If we start with the healthy individual on the right, we can see that as we give incremental increases in the dose of inhaled methacholine, a substance which causes spasm of bronchial smooth muscle, we can see that while there is some drop in FEV1, it plateaus um, at a very large dose of methacholine and doesn't even actually reach the 20% level of, of reduction that we would typically see in someone who has airways hyperresponsiveness. But if we contrast this with someone who has asthma, we can see that with the first dose of methacholine, there is in fact a, a small decrement in lung function, which increases rather rapidly as we go to the next and the next doses of methacholine, both reaching and surpassing the 20% reduction in FEV1 which is the threshold for which we determine bronchial hyperresponsiveness. So we know that this is a characteristic feature of asthma, and it's really found in everybody who has the disease. In fact, in individuals with normal airway function, provocative challenge is one way of determining whether a person has asthma or not. But one thing to keep in mind is that there's considerable variability in the intensity of airways hyperresponsiveness in asthmatics. And the level of airways hyperresponsiveness is variable both among patients with asthma and interestingly within individual themselves. Patients who have this phenomenon known as airways hyperresponsiveness typically will experience excessive responses to even small doses of a triggering stimulus. And patients really have different thresholds for which they react to this stimulus. Therefore, the level of airway hyperactivity variability provides some insight into the mechanisms that regulate this process. There's a couple of important considerations when we look at airways hyperresponsiveness. First is that the level of airways hyperresponsiveness measured by provocative challenge is often in proportion to the underlying severity of asthma. The second is that there are two components that we always have to consider. The first being the persistent component, the second being variable. The persistent component of airways hyperresponsiveness typically represents structural changes in the airway, which may be the result of chronic inflammation due to allergens or other provocative triggers. Variable relates to the inflammatory events, uh, typically inflammation that may ensue after a viral infection, after chronic exposure to allergen, after exposure to air pollutants, and other important real-life stimuli of, of, airways hyper, of, of airways inflammation. 
And what I think we have to keep in mind is that these components are interrelated. So we can break this down again and look at some of the varying causes of the variable and persistent components of airways hyperresponsiveness. Certainly we know that viral infections are a large issue, particularly with regard to acute exacerbations of asthma. Airborne allergen exposure, again, very important, both in determining chronic levels of inflammation, as well as potentially contributing to acute exacerbations. And what we often don't think about are a number of different ex occupational exposures, which may relate to both IgE and non-IgE mediated antigens, which can cause inflammation. This inflammation, as we can see, leads to this variable component. But the persistent may be contributed to by a number of different issues, starting with smooth muscle hypertrophy, which is something typical of asthma pathology, matrix deposition in the form of collagen. It gets laid down underneath the epithelium over a period of months and years. Vascular changes with an increase in blood flow to the airway wall leading to a, a state of edema and thickening of the airway, and then finally subendothelial thickening. So a question that comes to mind is how much of a role does airway inflammation play in airways hyperresponsiveness? Well, I think defining the contribution of airway inflammation depends on a number of different aspects. First, are we looking at persistent or variable airways hyperresponsiveness? And secondly, how are we measuring the airways hyperresponsiveness itself? using a direct method, which we'll be talking about momentarily, or a number of indirect methods, which actually lead to changes in cells that release mediators that ultimately determine um, airway bronchospasm. What I'd like to do now is examine this relationship between airways hyperresponsiveness and some of the structural changes in the airways that have been identified as being important um, in airway remodeling. We know that overall in patients with remodeling, there is a thickening of the airway wall, which is contributed to by an increase in airway smooth muscle mass, a thickening of the basement membrane, subepithelial fibrosis, which typically takes place over many years, alterations in the extracellular matrix constituted by collagen and other proteins, a rich enrichment of the vascular supply, um, which brings in a larger amount of blood resulting in edema. And finally, and very importantly, glandular hypertrophy. The sum total of all these changes, which ultimately end up in a phenomenon referred to as error remodeling, may lead to irreversible and long-term loss of lung function, which will be experienced as the, by the patient as an increase in symptoms. How do we get to this point of error remodeling? Most, most experts believe that's initially the result of chronic inflammation, but it can persist independently of inflammation. And there are some other issues involved that correlate with persistent airway hyperresponsiveness. One of the important issues to keep in mind is that most of the pharmacologic interventions that we have at our disposal that do effectively treat airway inflammation may not necessarily reduce or eliminate airways hyperresponsiveness. And one study that comes to mind was approximately two decades ago when um, high doses of inhaled corticosteroids were used for a period of a decade. All signs of inflammation had resolved, but the patient still had measurable airway hyperresponsiveness um, as assessed by methacholine challenge. Now we've discussed some of the tenets of airways hyperresponsiveness and some of the pathologic correlates, 
But a question that is very important to answer is, why does it take place and how does it occur? And we're continuing to ask this question despite decades of research that have looked into mechanisms of smooth muscle contraction in response to both neural input and the environment. And there's really not an exact consensus on what causes airway hyperresponsiveness. Um, but all we can say is that there are a number of different mechanisms that in combination seem to be important. For instance, with regard to airway inflammation, accumulation of mast cells seems to be an important predictor of airways hyperreactivity. And we know that a number of different cytokines and chemokines play an important role, both in bringing in inflammatory cells into the airway, such as eosinophils, and also having causing direct changes upon airway smooth muscle and, and the glands themselves. This leads to an increased state of contractility of airway smooth muscle. And one of the questions is, airway remodeling a consequence of this contraction or, or a, a cause of this? And I think that there is probably a bit of the which came first, the chicken or the egg. They feed into each other and over time contribute to this chronic changing state of the airway. Airway, airway closure certainly is a factor. And, and patients that, that do have early airway closure may have evidence of airways hyperresponsiveness. And then I think we're going to end with perhaps one of the most important yet poorly understood facets of airways hyperresponsiveness, which is an increase in cholinergic nerve input that causes innervation of the airway seems to be an important um, component of airways hyperresponsiveness. Let's now turn to the role of airway hyperresponsiveness in patients who have severe asthma. So why is it important to assess the presence of airways hyperresponsiveness? Both, I think, at a population level in understanding mechanisms of disease and how medications work, but potentially also in individuals where there is a question about the severity of asthma or even whether the patient actually suffers from asthma. We know that the presence of airway hyperresponsiveness is associated with increased decline in lung function over time. And interestingly, this can take place even in patients who have asymptomatic airways hyperresponsiveness, as may be seen in patients with allergic rhinitis who have no symptoms of asthma. This leads to an increased risk for the develop, development of asthma and an increased likelihood of the persistence of wheeze going from childhood to adulthood. What we have seen in populations of patients is that the severity of airways hyperresponsiveness as measured, for instance, by methicoline challenge, leads to an increased risk of exacerbation, an increased level of asthma severity as measured by symptoms, and an increased level of treatment required to control both symptoms and exacerbations in patients. When we look at airway hyperresponsiveness in an individual, what we have to always remember is that the level of airway hyperactivity may not be constant and in fact may vary over time, depending on the type of stimuli that the patient's exposed to. If they're living during a, a very bad pollen season, if they're exposed to dust mites in one location and not another, and this will have effects on the level of airway hyperresponsiveness, which will then give us varying results when we do a histamine or methicoline challenge. Um, this may also have relevance to allergen challenge. If a patient is primed through natural allergen exposure, when they undergo a specific allergen challenge, it may vary 
quite significantly from one point in time to the other. When we think about how to intervene with airways hyperresponsiveness, many studies have shown that anti-inflammatory therapy, particularly with inhaled glucocorticoids, may reduce airways hyperresponsiveness and can improve lung function. And what's interesting about this phenomenon is that we may or may not see that as we treat inflammation, that there will be an effect on underlying airway remodeling. Certainly inhaled corticosteroids in combination with long-acting beta agonists have shown some effect in this regard, but it's certainly not a large effect. When we try to tease out and understand better different asthma phenotypes, we've come to learn that a, a study of airways hyperresponsiveness may actually be useful in this regard. So when we talk about phenotypes, I think it's important again to remind ourselves that asthma is not a single disease, but rather a number of different syndromes with different pathophysiologic features, different clinical features, and, and may present differently across these different subtypes of asthma. And I think it's important that we grasp this difference in phenotypes as we approach patients in a more personalized way and try to practice what we call personalized or precision medicine, which really is based on a, a much finer level of understanding of pathophysiology in a given patient so that we can provide a targeted approach based on inflammatory cells or cytokines or other pathologic features. When we talk about airways hyperresponsiveness, this may be a feature involved in our approach to a, the therapy in a given patient. But to date, we don't include that in the evaluation of each and every individual who has asthma. Um, it's time consuming. It may not be easily accessible to the physician, but we certainly do employ this approach when we look at patients in clinical trials or patients undergoing studies of pathophysiologic mechanisms of asthma. Now, one situation in which it's interesting to look at how Aries hyperresponsiveness relates to the underlying disease process is looking at the issue of tobacco smoke exposure. And there has been some work which has explored the relationship between environmental tobacco smoke and the release of a cytokine referred to as thymic stromal lymphopoietin or TSLP. We've known for many years that smoking can disrupt the lung epithelial barrier, have an effect on innate immune function, and actually damage tissues by activating a number of different inflammatory immune cells whether they be resident or recruited into the airway. And this may relate in part to the release of cytokines coming from these cells in the airway. We've been able to identify that there may be a number of genetic variants that actually encode for levels of cytokines that may be a direct contributor to the susceptibility for smoking-related lung disease. One of the things to keep in mind is that it's important to identify what is the role of smoking, both in acute and chronic inflammation, in an attempt to understand what might we use to treat smoke-induced lung disease, whether it be chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or asthma, and try to tease out um, what exactly is at play in these patients. This may very well have a genetic component, as a recent study did demonstrate that two different single nucleotide polymorphisms for TSLP, the cytokine, and another single nucleotide polymorphism for the TSLP receptor seem to have correlations to exposure to tobacco smoke. 
And these gene environmental interactions may be important in regulating the development of lung disease in patients who do smoke. We've been talking about the significance of airways hyperresponsiveness as a corollary in airways disease. And I think it's important to potentially look at the various ways that we can measure airways hyperresponsiveness. And I think before doing that, we should look at the chain of events that ultimately leads to smooth muscle constriction in a patient in whom we're measuring airways hyperreactivity. The first step being really a patient who is about to undergo bronchospasm may have dehydration of the airway due to a trigger such as eucapnic hyperventilation or exercise, as is shown above. This leads to an increase in the osmolarity of the fluid surrounding the airway, which then ultimately will change and lead eventually to bronchospasm. And a couple of different ways of accomplishing this in the laboratory are shown on the left with both hypertonic sodium chloride as well as um, inhaled mannitol. That change in osmolarity will lead to cell shrinkage and ultimately to the release of mediators that cause smooth muscle contraction. These that we've discussed so far constitute the indirect tests that can be employed in the laboratory. More commonly utilized are the direct tests using either methicoline or histamine as a way of directly inducing smooth muscle constriction. And as we all understand, the level of any of these provocateurs that is required to induce a change in airway caliber, typically defined as a 15 or 20% change, defines the levels of airway hyperresponsiveness. Mannitol is a provocateur that has been used increasingly, particularly recently, and is thought to act through the creation of an increased osmolar gradient in the periciliary fluid which ultimately leads to cells such as mast cells to release inflammatory mediators such as histamine and leukotrienes and prostaglandins, which eventually cause bronchoconstriction. The response has been shown in experimental studies to correlate with the level of eosinophilic and mast cell airway inflammation. There's a couple of observations that are worth making. First, a positive mannitol test is highly predictive of a response to anti-inflammatory treatment with inhaled corticosteroids. And for this reason, has important predictive value. Airway hyperresponsiveness, however, may also be common in patients without eosinophilic infiltrates in their airways. So we can look at mannitol potentially as a tool for identifying responders to new treatments, not necessarily in an individual patient, but certainly at the level of clinical trials and to look at the relationship between the mast cell and asthma in general. A recent study entitled Upstream, published in the European Respiratory Journal, examined the effect of blocking TSLP, in this case, with a monoclonal antibody called tezapelumab, and changes in airway hyperresponsiveness, and the relationship between that and eosinophilic airway inflammation. So TSLP, as we recognize, is an epithelial-derived cytokine, also referred to as an alarmin, which is critical in initiating the production of type 2 cytokines that ultimately lead to allergen-specific Th2 cells, um, activation of mast cells, and the ingress of eosinophils into the airway. It's also thought that TSLP may play a role in airways hyperresponsiveness in patients with asthma.
And this may be due to an effect on both mast cells as well as eosinophils ingressing into the airway. Prior trials have established that TSLP both acts as an important growth factor of airway mast cells, particularly of the chymase-positive phenotype, and may act as an activator of mast cells, which has certainly been demonstrated in the, in the skin. And given the fact that these mast cells are increased in patients with asthma and who have airways hyper-responsiveness, it poses the question, can blocking TSLP have an effect on airways hyper-responsiveness? Okay. Some of the data from the upstream trial are presented in this graphic. The placebo-treated patients are shown in blue and the patients treated with tezapelumab shown in red. And we can see that airways hyper-responsiveness using mannitol inhaled challenge improve from the baseline shown on the far left to week 12 relative to placebo. Airways hyper-responsiveness to inhaled mannitol improved in patients treated with tezapelumab with a mean change in provocative dose 15 of 1.9 doubling doses in patients treated with tezapelumab versus one doubling dose in patients treated with placebo. Whereas the mean change in PD-15 favored tezapelumab, this difference with placebo was not statistically significant. However, the proportion of patients without airways hyperresponsive to mannitol after 12 weeks of treatment was significantly higher in patients receiving tezapelumab compared with placebo. Let's now turn to the effect that tezapelumab had in the upstream trial on airway eosinophil counts that were measured using um, bronchoscopic specimens. As we go from baseline to week 12, airway tissue eosinophil levels were reduced 74% in patients treated with tezapelumab compared with an increase of 28% in patients receiving placebo. And this is shown in blue compared with placebo in red. The eosinophil levels that were measured in bronchoalveolar lavage fluid in the sputum and in the blood were all significantly reduced with tezapelumab as compared with placebo. And if we delineate these changes, in the BAL, 75% versus, versus 7%. In sputum, a 69% reduction versus an increase in 20, of 26%. And then in blood, a reduction by 39% versus an increase of 19%. Understanding that interleukin-5 is an important regulator of blood and airway eosinophils, we also understand that other cytokines are very, very critical to the presence of inflammation in the lung, including interleukin-13. Um, exhaled nitric oxide is an excellent biomarker for measuring the effects of IL-13. And we can see in the upstream study, exhaled ENO decreased by 48% in patients treated with tezapelumab compared to 21% for patients who received placebo, as shown in this graphic. Other important observations that came from the upstream study include the changes in neutrophil, lymphocyte, and basophil counts did not differ significantly comparing placebo with active tezapelumab, nor did the total IgE level. ACQ6 did improve relative to placebo, while there was not a significant change in AQLQ, and adverse events did not differ significantly between the two groups. So what can we conclude from the upstream trial? That when we looked at the mean level of airways hyperresponsiveness to inhaled mannitol, the levels between placebo and tezapelumab treated patients did not differ significantly. However, 
as we did demonstrate, the proportion of patients who had lost airway hyperresponsiveness to mannitol during that 12-week period was significantly higher in patients receiving tezepelumab. Additionally, treatment with tezepelumab led to a pronounced reduction in both subepithelial and BAL eosinophils of 74 and 75% respectively. In addition, there was a trend toward a significant reduction of airway tissue mast cells of 25%, supporting the concept that TSLP is a driver of both eosinophilic and mast cell inflammation, and subsequently a driver of airways hyperresponsiveness. There have been other agents that have attempted to look at the relationship um, between the action of the drug and airways hyperresponsiveness. The anti-IL-5 receptor alpha agent, benralizumab, was compared to the anti-IL-5 medication, mepolizumab, in passively sensitized human airways, with the primary endpoint being the inhibition of airways hyperresponsiveness to histamine. Benralizumab and mepolizumab both significantly inhibited airways responsiveness to histamine, with benralizumab being significantly more potent than the mepolizumab. But keep in mind, this is an in vitro study, and I think we have to start to take note of airways hyperresponsiveness as a significant predictor of the course of asthma over time. And I think additional head-to-head -head clinical trials will be necessary in evaluating the impact of these drugs um, and their long-term use on the development and expression of airways hyperresponsiveness. Um, currently, there are studies looking at the effects of dupilumab on airways hyperreactivity. What can we conclude from today's discussion? I think we can start with number one, airways hyperresponsiveness does occur in proportion to the degree of severity of asthma, a very important foundational concept. The second is that airway hyperresponsiveness does have consequences. It's associated with an increased decline in lung function, even in patients who have asymptomatic airways hyperreactivity. It's associated with an increased risk for the development of asthma both in children and adolescents and even adults um, prior to the development of asthma. And finally, there's an increased likelihood that wheeze and asthma will persist as patients move from childhood to adulthood. Number three, I think we can recognize that despite decades of research, while we have an improving understanding of airways hyperresponsiveness, we don't really have a precise exact notion as to why it occurs and how it progresses over time. Number four, from today's discussion, we are able to look at various ways of measuring airways hyperresponsiveness, understanding that both the indirect and direct measures of airway hyperactivity have their own strengths and weaknesses. And then I think finally, as we look forward to the development of new medications, particularly biologic medications for the treatment of asthma, we always have to consider the potential role that these medications will have on airway reactivity and how those changes might affect some of the long-term consequences of having asthma. I'd like to thank you all for joining me today. I hope you found this topic interesting and in some way may affect the way you practice in the future. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FSQ 860.
This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca LP.